0: name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Bring us together uh, in this fashion as we sing out to Him, as we give in worship to Him, and as we hear God's Word. Before we go ahead, let me take this time and um, welcome. Uh, Can we get the lights on please? Uh, Maboke back there. Uh, he is in uh, what we call Norte. um And I, I see he came with uh, another brother. So, welcome. Get to know them after church. Um, over tea and coffee. Um, we are continuing with our study in the Gospel according to Mark. We're looking at Mark chapter 11. Um, this morning, uh, verse 1 up until 11 as well. The title of the sermon is, Behold, your king comes to you. Behold, your king comes to you. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 11, I read from the ESV, follow me as I read God's word and as we hear him this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cord tied, on which no one has ever said, Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the cord and tied, um, a coat tied at a door outside in the street and, and, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you, what are you doing, untying the coat? And they told them what Jesus had said to them and they let them go. And they brought As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12th. This is God's word, and let us pray. Indeed, Lord, our prayer is that you will show us Christ. That you will reveal your glory as we draw near to you. Our hearts will be transformed through the preaching of your word until we truly, truly confess Jesus is Lord. I desire, Father, to hear you with the hearing of our spiritual ears to know you truly and to walk with you nearer. We pray that as your word works in our hearts, we will um, be sanctified by it. In Jesus' visit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Behold, your king comes to you. Behold, your King comes to you. We have reached a pivotal point in the book of Mark. We are in chapter 11 now. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. Jesus has been here, if you have read the Gospels, many times. In fact, he has been in the city below many times when he descends. From the Mount of Olives on this day, he will be setting into motion certain events that will climax with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. The the events are studying that we are studying today took place sometime on a Sunday. Before the sun sets the next Friday, Jesus will have been crucified and buried. Before the sun rises on the next Sunday morning, Jesus would have conquered death. He would have conquered hell and the grave by resurrecting from the dead. The the events of this day mark the beginning of our Lord's Passion Week. This is what we call, as he goes to the cross, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. Uh, Up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, he had always told his man to keep quiet about his identity. Often when Jesus healed people, if you remember, he would tell them to go their way and to keep quiet about what had happened to them. If you remember Mark chapter 7 verse 36, chapter 8 verse 30, chapter 9 verse 9, and Luke chapter 8 verse 56, this is what he said whenever he healed anyone. Now there's a change in the Lord's strategy here. On this day, Jesus begins to draw attention to himself. Why is he doing this? He does so because he is about to fulfill an ancient prophecy. He does so because he's about to present himself to the nation of Israel as their king. Hundreds of years earlier, the the prophet Zechariah penned these words in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, and this is where we find the title for our sermon this morning. Listen to what Zechariah says as he looks to the future and he prophesies about the coming Messiah he says these words he says rejoice greatly rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt or colt the the fowl of a donkey Jesus is about to fulfill that prophecy in detail. I'd like for us to examine this passage together today. I believe there are some precious truths that can be gleaned from this moment in our Savior's life. I want to borrow uh, the death title from uh, in the verse that we just read in Zechariah, Behold, your King comes to you. And I would like to talk to you about this King. I want you to see, first of all, the person of the king the presentation secondly of the king and thirdly the purpose of the king first of all we see the person of the king and we see this in verse 1 to verse 6 as we watch the law in action in these verses we are allowed to catch a glimpse of his glory imagine the scene if you will with me it is early in the morning and jesus is making preparations to go to jerusalem he is moving through two little villages Near the top of the mountain, he is in Bethphage, which means house of unrived things. And Bethany, which means house of dates. Jesus had some dear friends at Bethany, remember Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, with whom he stayed during his last days on earth. And in fact, Jesus had just performed one of the outstanding miracles when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Now, Jesus stands on the top of the Mount of Olives, preparing to descend into the city below. And from the top of that mountain, which stands, uh, you know, about 3,000, you know, let's say meters, I don't know, (laughs) which stands a lot deep, right, below sea level, Jesus could see the beautiful city spread out before him. And keep in mind that these events occurred during the week, right? Leading up to the Passover. Historians tell us that the, the population of Jerusalem was around 80,000 at the time. But during the Passover, below, uh, between 2 and 3 million people would crowd into the city for the celebration. And you can imagine the crowds, right? You can imagine how populated this uh, around this time this city is, that the people came in anticipation. They were looking for God to do something while they were there. God would do his greatest work of all during this Passover action. But most people would miss it altogether. Jesus chose this moment to reveal himself to the nation of Israel. He chose this moment to let Israel know that their king has arrived. Notice how he revealed himself in these verses. First of all, his personality Jesus sends two of his disciples to a village to get a young donkey called. He tells them exactly where they will find it, and what the people standing around will say to them. He even gives them some details about the animal. When his men go out to complete this assignment, they find that everything is just as Jesus said it would be. How did Jesus know all of this? Some writers suggest that Jesus had already been to the owners of this little donkey and arranged for the use of the animal. They believe that Jesus set this up beforehand. He went to make arrangements. Right? I suppose they believe Jesus set things up with that fish. Remember the fish <laughs> that Peter caught with the text money in his mouth? That Jesus made arrangements to say at this time just be there with the money? Well, he did set it up. But not physically. He set it up in His sovereignty. Right? These events remind us that Jesus is God and He is in control of all things. There is nothing outside His control. There is nothing that happens outside His knowledge. Everything that happens, Jesus knows and He uh, is the one in control of it. And that encourages me. So, so these verses prove that Jesus is God. So we see, first of all, his personality, and then we see his power. Right? These verses also demonstrate the power and authority of our Lord. Notice what Jesus says in verse 3. He he, he says to them, Say that the Lord has need of it. It's crazy, isn't it? It's amazing. Jesus called himself Lord here. This is a statement of his authority and of his power in this situation. I would just remind you that he is still Lord today. He still possesses all authority. Whether men recognize him and and, and, and bow to him or not, he is still Lord. Uh, There are people who today um, act very smart, then smarter than they deserve to be. There's a there's a there's a foolishness that one in order for one to reach this kind of foolishness they have to be really, really smart. (laughs) And they say, No, God does not exist, look at this and look at that. But let me tell you something. God exists. Whether if you believe that God exists, God exists. If you don't believe that God exists, God exists. God does not depend upon your belief to exist. He exists. He is Lord even today. The Lord has need of it. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, a day will come when People will confess me to be Lord whether they want it or not. They will bow the knee whether they want it or not. That they will come according to Philippians chapter 2. Now, I want you to note something here. Jesus was well known in these villages. He had, after all, just raised Lazarus from the dead. He was a local celebrity, in a way. When the owners heard it, heard that it was the Lord Jesus who wanted the call, they immediately sent it to him. But note the statement in verse 3, the Lord has need of it. It is an amazing statement. When God, uh, when when did God ever have a need? When did God ever have a need? But the paradox, where we use the word paradox, it's a a statement that is seemingly contradictory, but it is not, it is true. Right? What we see... we see in in the life of Jesus a, a parable. He was rich, yet he became poor. Right? He owned all things, yet he possessed nothing. He created the stars, yet he had nowhere to lay his head. He fashioned everything that there is out of nothing, yet he had to borrow a boat from which he had to preach his gospel. He created every drop of water that exists in the world, yet he cried. I first, as he was dying on the cross. He created every tree, yet he died on a borrowed cross. He created every rock, yet he had a borrowed tomb in, in which to be buried. He used the clouds as his chariot, according to Psalm 104, verse 3, yet he had to borrow a donkey on, on, on which to ride. That is the paradox of his life. He was rich, yet he made himself poor, so that those who believe on him might enjoy his riches. Now I want to do uh, what I call this morning donkeyology. I want to now look at the donkey just a bit. right? The theology of the donkey. Let's talk about the donkey for a few more minutes. That The Lord needed that donkey to fulfill his mission here on earth. Isn't that amazing brothers and sisters? Jesus is God and he could have done this any way he chose to. But he chose to use this little donkey. By the way, (laughs) he is still using little donkeys to get his work done on earth. (laughs) He uses the likes of you and me. (laughs) That's why I keep saying that there are no great men of God in the world. There is men who serve, men and women who serve a great God. He uses the likes of you and me. He could have assigned the task to angels, couldn't he? But he chose to work through human instruments. I am glad to be part of the Lord's business. I am glad that he could use a little donkey like me. Let me mention a few facts about this donkey before we leave him behind, shall we? First of all, the donkey had to be redeemed. That the, the little donkey was alive and useful to the Lord because it had to be redeemed. By the blood of the Lamb. Praise God, that is why I have life today. That is the only reason you and I have any usefulness today in the Lord. Praise the Lord for the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus upon us. Uh, Secondly, the donkey had to be released, didn't it? It had to be released. It was bound and had to be set free before the Lord could use it. Before you and I can be of any use to him, the chains of our sins are going to have to be broken and we are going to be be set free. We have to be set free in order to be in his service. And I praise his name. That is just what he did for his children. He set us free. And he who is free in Jesus Christ is free indeed. Isn't that what the word of God says? That he who the who, who the Lord set free is what? Free indeed. Thirdly, that donkey had to be ruled. Someone had to take charge over that donkey. Verse 2 tells us that the donkey had never been broken to ride. Yet it submitted itself to the Lord because uh, to, to the Lord and, and yielded to his control because he was Lord. That donkey wasn't frightened by the crowds or by their noise. It surrendered itself to the Lord totally. That is what he expects of us. He is looking for total submission and total surrender to him. The Lord could save sinners and accomplish his work on earth just fine with us. Yet he chooses to use frail human instruments for his glory. When we are like that donkey redeemed, released, ruled, he can use us too. Now I want you to note in verse 6 the phrase that um, we see in verse 6 here. And they told them that Jesus had said, uh, what Jesus had said and they let them go. In other words, Jesus tells his men to tell the people who owned the donkey that he will return their property as soon as, um, as he is done with it, right? When that donkey came back, it was better than it was when it left. When it left, it was unbroken, untied. When it came home, it was ready for the saddle. That's just what the Lord does, isn't it? He takes uh, when we give him, and he gives it back. It is far better than it was when we got it. You give him an Abraham, an Abram, a lost pagan. He will give you back Abraham, the mighty man of faith. You give him a Jacob, a schemer and a trickster, and he will give you back Israel, the prince of God. You give him Saul of Tarsus, a mean, cruel man, and he will give you Paul, the mighty apostle of God. You give him a Simon, a weak, a vacillating man, and he will give you Peter, a rock for Jesus. Give him your broken, scarred life, and he will give you back a new start, a new life, and a new home in heaven. (coughs) Secondly, I want us to see not only the person of this king, but the presentation of this king, in verse 7 to 11. We are allowed to see the person of this king on this event. We are also allowed to see a presentation of the king in these verses. The disciples go and get the donkey. They return to Jesus and put their outer garments over the beast in the place of a saddle. Jesus climbs on the donkey's back and starts down the mountain. The fact that the animal Jesus is riding has never been broken is a miracle in itself. And of course, um, Psalm 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 6 to verse 8 tells us that the Lord has dominion over his creation, doesn't he? That the king of Israel is about to present himself to the nation. We see a couple of things. First of all, he is the humble one. And as I preached earlier, he, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Part of that prophecy said the Messiah will be humble. That is what we see here. We see a humble man on the back of a humble beast, a humble animal, making a humble declaration of his identity. Imagine this procession, brothers and sisters. Jesus is on a donkey and he's surrounded by... By a multitude of common people, it was as one writer says, a procession of paupers. The people are waving branches and not swords. He's sitting on an, on, on old coats and not a saddle. He's riding a little donkey and not a mighty stallion. He is surrounded by a ragtag rabble and not the strong soldiers. The, the Roman soldiers saw this parade. Maybe as they saw it, they must have laughed to themselves at this man who would be king of the Jews. Look at him. Now, let me tell you why. The, the soldiers might have seen a Roman triumphus, right? In those great celebrations, victorious Roman generals would return from the battlefields with the spoils of war. Defeated kings and soldiers would be paraded through town. Shameful! The, 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 the victorious army would walk past cheering uh, past the cheering crowds. Elephants, tigers, lions would parade past. The victorious general would be riding in the finest of chariots, pulled by along by handsome horses. Thousands would cheer and Rome would vibrate with the shouts of the people praising Caesar and the Roman gods. But this. This must have happened and appeared to be a joke to all who saw it. As they saw this Messiah on a donkey that is probably also adjusting to now being broken. This little procession was just the beginning. The events that began on this day would one day topple the Roman Empire. One day this lowly king would bring bring Rome to his knees. And by the way, a Roman general could only have a triumphus if he killed over 5,000 enemy soldiers in battle. Very soon King Jesus would claim over 8,000 new believers. Right? Look again at this crowd who is there as the people wave their palm branches before Jesus and wave the road with their clothing paved the road with their clothes. I would imagine Bartimaeus is there. Remember Bartimaeus? I would imagine Zacchaeus is there. I would imagine that Lazarus was there along with Mary and Martha. That crowd was full of people he had healed, delivered, and ministered to, and they were praising him. (coughs) And I am in that parade too. It's a mighty long parade by now. But it is marching off toward eternity as Jesus is in the lead. Those who know him are still praising his name and worshipping the one who became poor so that we may become rich in him. Look at him as he goes. What is your reaction? Is it praise? Is your heart filled with awe as you look at him? Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Not only is he humble, he is the lofty one. He is the lifted one. As the crowd descend the slopes of the Mount of Olives, the people are praising the Lord. They are praising, eh, 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 they, they are practicing what we call an antiphonal uh, singing. That the people in, in front would say a part and the people in the back would answer them. We are told what they said in verses 9 to 10. The word Hosanna means save now. It was a cry for the Messiah to deliver his people. It would come to be used as a shout of praise, much like we use Hallelujah, right? The people are praising the name of the king, just as the psalmist predicted that they would. In Psalm 118, verse 25 to 26, the people are exalting Jesus as their king. They are right on the money. Mark doesn't relate this, but Luke does. Luke tells us that the Pharisees are upset about this demonstration. They they want Jesus to tell his followers to stop their shouting. Jesus tells them that if these people were to hold their peace, the very rocks will cry out. In other words, prophecy is being fulfilled. And the Lord will have his praise. He's going to have his praise on the earth. Let me just say that as long as the Lord saves sinners and leaves his saints on this earth, there will be some who will praise him. And he is worthy to receive that kind of praise. We are commanded to praise him. We have every reason to praise. Now, I do not want the rock to do what I am capable. Of, I am capable of doing myself. A Shame on us when we can find the words, the courage, and the reasons to praise the Lord. He is still the lofty one. He is still the high and lifted one. He is still worthy to be praised in the world and especially in this church. Now we saw the person of. Um, the King the presentation of the King and then we see lastly and thirdly the purpose of the King in verse 11. Jesus went through this procession to fulfill the Word of God but he had another purpose in what he was doing. In fact he had a double purpose. Look at what he did. First of all he did to examine the town to examine the town, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the triumph. Mark, again, um, doesn't mention this as clearly. But in Luke, Luke does in Luke 19, verse 41 to 44, as Jesus neared the city, he saw Jerusalem. He saw their future. He knew that within 40 days, within 40 years, the Romans would besiege the town. He knew that over 30,000 Jews would be crucified as the legions marched into the city. He knew that the city would hold out for months and while the people succumbed by the thousands to disease and starvation. He knew that they would throw the bodies of the dead over the walls of Jerusalem. He knew that the Roman general, Titus, would see the pile of dead bodies lying in in outside the walls of Jerusalem and he would lift his hands toward heaven and to call God as a witness that it was not his fault and that it did not have to to be this way. Jesus knew that the Romans would conquer the city and that the temple and the city would be utterly demolished. He also knew that the people would be scattered to the four winds of the earth He knew all these things and more, and Jesus wept over the town. Get this image in your mind. The people are shouting, they are dancing, they are singing. They are praising God and the Lord Jesus. They are excited, and they are vocal in their excitement. Jesus, however, is a man with a broken heart. He knows that Israel will not receive. 1 verse 11 doesn't it tell us that that his own did not receive him he knows they will reject him and crucify him he knows they are slated for judgment and in the midst of of jubilation Jesus weeps that is why he is called the man of sorrows in Isaiah chapter 53 have you ever wondered what Jesus sees when he looks at our town? Have you ever wondered that? We see economic depression. We see people who are good-hearted, but who do not care about the things of God. We see people with whom we get irritated. We see prospects for our church. We see friends, neighbors, saints, and sinners. But what does Jesus see? Jesus sees people who are suffering. sees people who are lost these people are going to hell and how how we need to see the people of our town like Jesus sees them when we do we will weep over them and we will weep over as Jesus wept over Jerusalem when we weep and as he wept we will be more motivated to take the gospel to them brothers and sisters it is strange I'm telling you, it is strange when Christians have the best news in the world and they keep it to themselves. Isn't it strange? When you know what Jesus Christ has done for you and you keep it to yourself. It is strange. You look at the town as it is riddled by drugs, as it is populated by prostitution. You look at the town as uh, 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 um, tavern after tavern is being erected. You look at the town as false teacher after false teacher is coming to lavish the town and the people of this town. And we keep quiet. And we continue as if everything is going normal. It is not normal brothers and sisters. It is not normal. It will never be normal. What are you doing about it? Are your prayers reflecting that you are weeping over this town? Are your prayers reflecting that your heart is broken over this town? Are your prayers reflecting the fact that you see that they are like lost sheep without a shepherd and that they need Jesus? Are you seeing that, brothers and sisters? Is it something that is making you weep? Is something that is breaking your heart? I saw, um, took my wife to the driving school and there was this young man and he had a syringe with him and he kept stabbing himself with it and, and I just couldn't believe it. I had never seen it. he kept stabbing himself and trying to find the vein. What are we doing, brothers and sisters? Come here. We sing our good songs. We smile at each other. We hear the word. We go home. Next Sunday, people are dying, people are languishing, people are suffering without Jesus. And you are here with the greatest news of all, and you are keeping it to yourself. Amen. Not only did he examine the town, but he he was examining the temple as well. The last thing that Jesus did on that day was visit the temple. He took the time to look at all things. He saw the beauty of the buildings. He saw the gold, the silver, and all the trappings of the religion. He saw the priests carrying out their rituals. He saw the people bringing their sacrifices to the priest. He saw it all, but you will notice that they did not see him. they they, they saw him, at least they saw his physical body but they did not see him the king had entered the temple and they knew nothing of it the lord of glory had visited his house and they were ignorant of his presence they saw they had no place for him in their temple so he left, what he saw is that they had no place for him now another question gets here What does Jesus see when it comes to our church, how he spoke about our town, what about our church? He is here today. (laughs) His presence is here today. What does he see? What does he see? Does he see people who come looking for him? or Does he see people just going through the motions? Does he see people who are worshipping him and praising him? Or does he see people just caught up in the rituals? This is what we do, right? We come, we uh, gather, we sing, we hear the word we God. What does he see? What does he see in this church today? More importantly, what does Jesus Christ see in your heart? Does he see his face reflected back to him? Does he see a heart filled with love for him? Does he see an earnest worshiper? Or does he see that you're lost? You are religious, but you're lost. Does he see that you need to come home? Does he see that all is not well in your heart? What does the Lord Jesus see at Calvary today? As he goes to Calvary and prepares for Calvary, what does he see? The big question is, do we see him? He's here. But is he being worshipped? I'm not talking about the fact that we sing songs, right? Because we can sing songs and still not worship. Them. Is he being worshipped? Is the king being acknowledged? Where's your heart this morning? Jesus makes his way, his way to Calvary. he prepares to die for us on the cross, to bow his head and redeem his church. And as we are here together, what's happening in our hearts? I'm not talking about the fact that we know theology, we know Bible verses. It's it's all good. It's good to continue studying those but is there sincerity in your heart for Jesus? Are you drawing near to Him? Do you truly want to know Him? I find that the problem is that we want Jesus, yes, but we also want a piece of the world too. We want Jesus, but we also want material things too. We, we, we don't want Jesus. But we want our sin too. Is that what Jesus Christ is seeing in your heart? That you want him. As St. Augustine said, as at one point he said, God, give me purity of heart, but not yet. Is that what's happening in your heart? Saying, I want you, but just not yet. Let me enjoy just a bit. Just a bit a bit. Zechariah told Israel to be ready. He said, your king comes to you. He came to them and they were unprepared for his coming. A few received him, but as a whole the nation of Israel rejected their king. They turned him away and they crucified him. Did you know that the king is passing right now? He's here to receive those who will come to him in faith. He's here to restore those who will come home. He's here to refresh those who are weary. He's here to reward those who are faithful. He's here to receive those who are hungry for him. He's here for you. The question is, what will you do with him? Will you bow before him? Will you send him away? Behold, the king has come to you. The king is here. Maybe acknowledge his presence? And glorify Him today. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, as we say, "Behold, our God." Our hearts do pray that we will truly behold You. Your glory will fill our hearts. The desire for those who do not know You to know You will be our passion. Help us, O oh Lord. To look to the world, not with pride, as if we are the ones who brought ourselves to you, but to look with pity, with grief, and with a desire to talk to them about this Saviour, Jesus, who is Saviour. We want to honour you, Lord, with our lives. We want to please you. Help us, O Lord, we are weak. We cannot do it without you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.